I'm Stephanie Gleason, senior reporter for The Deal, and this is Fresh Start. On this podcast, we examine issues in Chapter 11 to see whether bankruptcy really is a fresh start. Today, this question is really at the heart of our discussion, as in the wake of Purdue, Boy Scouts, USA Gymnastics, and now Johnson & Johnson, the question of what Chapter 11 is capable of and what problems it should be trying to solve is at the front of our minds. We are so lucky to have Melissa Jacoby here to talk about these issues. She's a professor of law at UNC Chapel Hill. She was an American Bankruptcy Institute scholar, and she was recently appointed by Justice John Roberts to assist the Federal Judicial Center in designing educational programs for bankruptcy judges. Melissa, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. I wanted to start our discussion by laying a little foundation. I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about what these cases are even doing in Chapter 11. I know a lot of the companies are solvent except for these mass tort liabilities. So why are they filing for Chapter 11? Well, it's a really good question. We do need to ask, what on earth are these cases and these transactions doing here? Bankruptcies in the federal constitution and it was meant to be a really tiny slice of the legal system geared toward over indebtedness. There's a whole other set of courts and procedures designed for torts and mass torts. So it really is a puzzle, but some of it may come from a creeping history, I think, of uh, how we got here. We didn't start in this place. That's interesting, a creeping history. I know that there has been a long history of little by little, more and more cases winding up in chapter 11. But as you said, it wasn't intended to be this purpose. How has the law changed to permit these cases to deal with these liabilities in chapter 11? Well, it's really interesting to see the development that I started thinking about this pretty shortly after I even graduated from law school. So not long after I graduated, my former law professor, now Senator Elizabeth Warren, asked me to help research and write this big report on bankruptcy reform that Congress had requested. And she was the reporter, I was the staff attorney, and then there were nine commissioners. And we traveled around the country and held hearings and talked to lawyers and judges and others involved in the system. And one of the hot topics, and this was in the mid-90s, that we knew we'd have to address was the use of bankruptcy by companies facing mass torts. And It definitely was a hot topic then, but it was really framed quite differently than I think we're talking about it today. So Elizabeth Warren and the commission were really worried about future claims and fairness to people who might not even know that they've been harmed yet. So if people have been exposed to something harmful, some know and some don't. And they may not have symptoms or injuries for years. I know that I think the tort law folks call this a long tail problem. And Elizabeth was really worried about treating people differently if they found out 20 years from now that they were injured versus if they found out today or yesterday. And she thought they should both be watched out for equally, even if the law right now doesn't treat them the same. So the focus then was, how can we make resources available to those whose claims arise in the future? So sort of really going for equality. And this discussion happened just after Congress had added something to the bankruptcy code for asbestos. Now, that's really a classic long tail because people took decades to figure out that they had had exposure and were ill because of it. So Congress authorized this very narrow kind of restructuring plan specifically for asbestos claims and specifically worried about future claims. But here's the thing. Since the 1990s, it's become increasingly clear that the bankruptcy system 
isn't really that focused on equality among creditors. And it certainly moved away from that. Uh, and certainly equality among past and present and future claimants does not seem to be a driver of conversations about the cases that you mentioned in your introduction, Stephanie. They're about litigation management. They're about maximizing economic value for healthy companies. And beyond that, nonprofits and churches with massive stores of wealth that they've sequestered in other places. And it also seems that since the 90s, it's become increasingly clear that the actual people being affected by these claims and are facing grievous harms, they're not given a real direct voice in these bankruptcies in the way that I think that they should. So those are some of the problems I see developing since we started. We saw sort of the early days of shifting the focus of Chapter 11 to deal with mass torts. It does seem like this issue of future claimants, you don't hear about it that much anymore. And in these cases, it almost seems like an afterthought about the people who might come forward later. During the period I've been writing about chapter 11, I feel as though there's always been mass tort cases that we've seen trickle in. But in the last few years, there have been a cascade of them that have gotten really big notice. I mentioned them in my intro. Of course, there are still many dioceses in Chapter 11. PG&E had the wildfire liabilities. These cases feel different than many of what we've seen previously in Chapter 11. You started to touch on it before, but can you talk about the ways maybe Purdue specifically is really changed how mass torts are dealt with in Chapter 11? Some cases like Purdue do feel different in some respects. So Purdue had a billion dollars in the bank and no debt really to speak of when it filed. And, and that's not, never quite the image of a bankruptcy filer that we have in mind, given what the system was used for. We see from a case like Purdue Pharma, the appeal of the major perks offered in the bankruptcy system. Now, they're meant to be managing over-indebtedness but they also can be very potent if they're allowed to be used in other contexts. And the big one is injunctions, stopping otherwise lawful acts and activities, both against an individual who is in bankruptcy or a company that's in bankruptcy, but also related parties. So if you can get a really broad injunction, whether temporary or permanently, it is a very effective way to push people to a negotiating table that they'd rather not be at when they'd rather be taking a different approach. So if you want to effectuate a transaction with tons and tons of parties and make sure it's very final, which has a court order backing it, bankruptcy becomes a very appealing place for cases that really don't have much to do with over-indebtedness. So the things that Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family, the owners of the company, needed to make this idea work Really, many of them can't be found in the bankruptcy code at all. They were not the first case to ask for more expansive protection during and after the case, but they really did push the boundaries a fair amount uh, and they got it done. The bankruptcy court has officially confirmed the plan. It could be effective in the next couple of months. And so we see a creeping use of the system to take these perks designed for one purpose and rework them to do something else. Right. So in Purdue, we saw that the Sackler family who did not file for bankruptcy was able to receive what we call releases in bankruptcy, but basically protection from being sued in the future, even though they never filed for bankruptcy. 
And it seems like this specific protection is what's driving most of the mass tort cases these days, that protection for not even just the entity in bankruptcy, but the entities outside of bankruptcy. So now Boy Scouts and USA Gymnastics are driving toward confirmation later this year and next year. Are those cases similar to Purdue in what they're requesting? They certainly have similarities. They are part of a long line of cases that push boundaries and keep creeping the boundaries a little bit further and further. I I do think they've unfolded a little bit differently, but some of the things that particularly the Boy Scouts case has in common with Purdue is they both involved some business associations planning to make sure they could file in a particular court. They both involve entities with lots of assets to stay out of the bankruptcy, even though those entities or persons really want a release of liability, and often from a whole lot of people, from a very unclear set of lawsuits in Purdue's case. And in the Boy Scouts case, it's more clear the scope of lawsuits that they're talking about. And also in these cases, we are seeing cementing a lot of power in the plaintiff's lawyers. So we've got so many claimants, but the lawyers are playing such a huge role. And we often do have a concern there about what we might call principal agent problems. What is driving the lawyers to make the deal that they're making relative to what's in the client's best interest? Now, that is definitely not limited to the bankruptcy context. That is an issue across many contexts dealing with mass torts. But it is something to be concerned about even when it happens in bankruptcy. Now, there are some differences I think are worth pointing out in the Boy Scouts versus Purdue, for example, or other cases. So the Boy Scouts do have actual debt. They also had operational problems or really membership problems. Their membership had severely declined, and that was pre-pandemic. They filed before the pandemic shut things down, and that, of course, has had its own devastating effect on so many activities, including operations of the Boy Scouts. And I'd say that the management from the court has also had a different vibe. But overall, they do pull from the same playbook of using parts of the bankruptcy system to address issues that really were meant to be dealt with in other courts. I mean, I think when I think about the Boy Scouts, what concerns me so much is that state legislatures took the very explicit step of saying, we want to reopen the statute of limitations. We realize there are harms that need to be recognized. People who need a day in court in their local courts. And the bankruptcy changed all that. It stopped all that. It moved everything to Delaware. And so the perceptions of the bankruptcy system of shifting all of this to a federal court in Delaware, however wonderfully the judge may handle it, is very problematic. Right. All of this, of course, is hard to separate from the question of where these companies file for bankruptcy. You know, Boy Scouts in Delaware. We see now that Johnson and Johnson has put its talc liabilities in North Carolina. They're based in New Jersey. Of course, Purdue went to White Plains before Judge Drain. Of course, the choice of venue is always strategic on the part of the company, but how does it affect these claimants, the decision of where to file? 
Yeah, so we can't really blame the lawyers for using the flexibility the law offers them to advance the interests of their clients. I will admit, I did not expect it to be quite as brazen as it has become in recent years. But we should start by saying bankruptcy law does create this problem. It gives extraordinary latitude for big enterprises to pick the court in which to go bankrupt. That's not something that individuals can do or small businesses so much, but big businesses definitely can. And what's fascinating about that is that even though bankruptcy is part of the federal court system, the rules are very different for other federal litigation. In other federal litigation, picking the court involves much more the convenience of other parties, not the one deciding to initiate the case. And if readers or listeners are interested in this, an article I wrote called Corporate Bankruptcy Hybridity tries to offer a somewhat concise explanation for a law professor, I guess I'd say, (laughs) but talking about how different it is and what the effects are. And the system has to not only be fair, but seem fair. And I can say that in the Purdue bankruptcy and many others, there is a perception that picking the court is somehow eroding the legitimacy of that process, especially if people who have been so deeply affected by the opioid crisis are having a difficult time participating in that process, feeling like their voices are heard. And so I think it does have broader legitimacy costs. It also concentrates power in a very small number of judges and courts. Now, these judges work incredibly hard and they are so smart and the bankruptcy courts are merit selected. And in general, we're very fortunate to have the judges that we have all around the country, but they're also human. And these are a lot of cases in a very small area. We add to that, that it is very hard to get an appeal heard in a big chapter 11 case, by which I mean to have other judges who can set precedent and make the law clear actually weigh in on these cases. So we're concentrating the power even further. And the public, I think, is well aware of that. And so it is an issue that makes the system seem less fair, even if it was running exactly as it should. Right. So part of the reason Purdue may have chosen to go to White Plains is because there is different precedents within bankruptcy courts. And there, they knew that these third-party releases that the Sacklers were able to receive were permitted. And right now, I know that Purdue is being appealed. And there's a lot of question around what you were talking about, whether other judges will be able to review this. Perhaps you could talk a little bit more about the reasons it is difficult for other judges to review bankruptcy decisions. One reason is that once you've gotten the deal done and gotten a court to approve it, in some types of restructurings, it is possible to move very, very quickly to implement the plan. The term that's used is substantial consummation. And once that's happened, this is not in the bankruptcy code. It is not in the statute that Congress has written. Other courts have decided that it is moot that we cannot unscramble the egg. And so even if the bankruptcy court got it wrong, then that's a shame, but there is nothing the court can do. It does not exercise the subject matter jurisdiction it's supposed to have. This is a very big problem, a very big challenge 
a lot of academics, even if they don't agree on other things, agree that this doctrine is a problem. It really hurts the development of the law. It results in less guidance, even when judges have different views and would like some more guidance. And it also just makes bankruptcy too different from other areas of the law. In other areas of the law, the U.S. Supreme Court says other courts have to exercise the jurisdiction and hear and decide the cases before them. They're not allowed to opt out this way. So I was disappointed that the Supreme Court has yet again decided not to take up this issue. But this concept of equitable mootness, which is a judge-made concept, that circuit courts, uh, life-tenured judges who sit in panels of three, have decided relieves them of the obligation. So that's one issue. The other issue is that unlike other areas of the law, bankruptcy has two layers of appeal as of right. So when a bankruptcy court enters a final order, typically the first step is to a individual district judge, especially in a place like New York, There are some circuits like the Ninth Circuit that have a very active bankruptcy appellate panel. And that's actually made up of three bankruptcy judges who sit and hear that first appeal instead. But New York does not have that. So you must go to the district court first and then the court of appeals. And so that's a lot of extra layers. And in addition, when the district court rules, that doesn't make law for the entire circuit. It resolves the single issue before them, but it also doesn't bind any of their peers. So here again, I was disappointed to learn that Purdue is not likely to have a direct appeal to the Second Circuit. There is a process that Congress put in place in 2005 to say, you know, some issues are super important and they're novel, and maybe we should have a process to skip the district court in some instances. Purdue is ready-made for that. It is exactly the kind of case that Congress had in mind, given the novelty and expansiveness of the issues, as well as the fact that, as you mentioned, Stephanie, there are different interpretations of the law among the judges in the courts, even in New York. Yet, this typically starts with the certification of the bankruptcy judge to say, yes, this should be right before the Second Circuit right now. And the judge opted not to do that. So it looks like instead the district court will be ruling instead. Both of these things that you are talking about right now were very recently going on in the Purdue appeals. And so I'm interested to know why you think the judge in Purdue, Judge Drain, was perhaps reluctant to allow the direct appeal. And also, I think it was a surprise very recently that the district court judge decided not to stop the implementation of the Purdue plan because of what you're saying regarding this problem of equitable mootness that she didn't stay it, didn't stop it. I'm interested in your thoughts on why those decisions might have been made. Let's talk about the district court role in the Purdue Pharma case. So the district judge who did have a hearing on Purdue Pharma to think about what needs to be done in an appellate process, I think she was in a bit of a sticky situation. And I, of course, can't read anybody's mind, but I did listen in to as much of that hearing as I could. The audio was not very clear. It was often difficult to hear. So I pieced together what I could. My sense there is that she determined 
that right now there's no risk of the plan actually being substantially consummated, that there's a lot more work that has to be done. There are other hurdles, including the Department of Justice and and, uh, criminal sentencing against Purdue Pharma, which is a whole other story, but that there are many hurdles to cross and that they were not close to mooting out the case. He also has asked the parties to stipulate, such as Purdue Pharma, who said it was absurd to think that an appeal could be mooted at this point. She asked them to put it in writing. She is looking for a stipulation that those who are happy with the plan and opposed to a reversal to say, we will not argue later that this uh, appeal is moot. Now, of course, the problem with that is that mootness is not determined by whether the parties think it's moot. It's determined by whether the court thinks it's moot, but also that parties have been known to change their mind and circumstances change. So there's a little risk there, but I think the judge was really trying to be mindful of that and also seeing that there's plenty of time for her to reconsider this. She invited the parties to come to her again if they thought that there was a risk of not being able to hear the issues on the merits. So I got the sense that she really is committed to hearing the issues on the merits. My mention of the sticky situation is that when she was asked to be considering this, she did not yet know whether the bankruptcy court would recommend going directly to the Second Circuit, which would then alleviate her of doing the appeal at all. But I currently remain confident that she will do everything she can to make it not moot. That doesn't mean I have a sense of exactly how it will go and whether that can change, but that was the tenor of that hearing. What I can glean from the media reporting on it is that the judge did look at the requirements in the statute for direct appeal and decided they were not met. Certainly, he is entitled to make that ruling. I did also get the sense, though, that he viewed direct appeal requests somewhat differently than some other judges. So in cases like the Detroit bankruptcy and the General Motors bankruptcy, when issues came up that those bankruptcy judges said, hey, you know, this really is novel. You know, I know it's not about whether I got it right or wrong. I just didn't have as much guidance as I could. They were very willing to certify for a direct appeal because it would benefit the law. It seems in this instance, some judges take it a bit more personally when asked to certify a direct appeal. Do you think that because the case does have to go first to the district court and then likely be appealed after that, that the mootness issue could arise in further appeals because this will take longer, of course, if it doesn't go directly to the Court of Appeals? Yes. While I think it is very likely that district judge will be able to rule on the merits, it seems far less likely that the Second Circuit would have the same opportunity. Now, again, equitable mootness is their doing. They could go on bonk or they could say that the standards are not met. It is up to them. But given their druthers in other cases... It seems as if there's a real risk that it doesn't get to the Second Circuit without a direct appeal. The irony is, and I won't go into too much detail here, but the prominent case that gets cited for why Purdue is allowed to release so many other parties through its plan is a case that didn't 
actually find a third party release to be legal. It found it to be not legal, but that was pretty much dicta. Um, it was not binding because the court said it's equitably moot. So we have gone to the trouble of saying that we don't think these releases follow the law, but we're not going to do anything about that because we don't think that the egg can be unscrambled. We don't think that the plan can be unwound. So that's the kind of approach that we've seen the Second Circuit take in some recent years. So that's why I'm not confident it will get through the Second Circuit on the merits. And which case was that? The Metro Media case. Ah. So we've heard a lot that Purdue had a very high voter turnout. And I was wondering if you could dig in a little bit about whether that is the reality that claimants have seen. So there are a couple different ways to describe the voting scenario in Purdue Pharma. And some of them have definitely gotten more highlighted than others. So there was a very big challenge for the claims administrator in that case, first of all, to just find the people who might be affected by the opioid crisis to make sure they know about the case and their rights to be part of it. And Ryan Hampton writes about this in his book, Unsettled, about how the noticing process even worked to let people know about the case based on Hampton's experience in the advocacy community. And he writes very interestingly about how he might have done it differently. But putting that aside, so about 130,000 personal injury claimants took the trouble to file a claim. Now, again, Hampton and others think that is way too low to even begin with. But we start there. Those are the people that did get found and decided to go to the trouble of filling out some complicated paperwork that they have a claim against Purdue Pharma. So then the voting happens. And in the bankruptcy system, voting is measured a couple different ways, but it's based on those who actually do vote rather than those who are asked to vote. And of course, we know that from political elections that it works that way there too. So what struck me was the huge number of creditors, of personal injury creditors in particular, who did not vote, even though they had sort of opted in to be part of the system. Now, legally, we don't count them for purposes of determining whether a class of claims supports the plan. And yet, if more than half of the personal injury claimants didn't vote at all, even though they opted into being part of the process, shouldn't we have some questions about that, about why they didn't vote? and at least recognize that they didn't put their stamp of approval on it one way or another. Purdue Pharma has been only emphasizing the high approval rate it did receive from those who did vote. And that's true, but it really doesn't tell the whole story. And some in the advocacy community for the opioid crisis do have concerns about the reasons people didn't vote, about potential confusion, about what the impact would be or the like. So I think it is a more complicated picture. And however one feels about it in this case, we need to think about it for future cases if bankruptcy is going to be used to deal with mass torts and, and related kinds of claims that real people hold in large number. Right. The system is not necessarily really straightforward. And usually the people who are in bankruptcy who are involved in the system tend to be sophisticated. And are there ways that you think that 
these cases that by their nature, because they're mass tort, involve people who aren't familiar with bankruptcy, that they can be better dealt with to explain what's going on to these parties? It is essential that explanations are written clearly, comprehensively, but clearly so that different audiences are able to interpret them accurately and without too much difficulty. And in some cases, there's been more emphasis on that than others. I recall when the Detroit bankruptcy judge, the judge presiding over the city of Detroit, who was concerned about the ballots going out to workers and retirees. I believe he asked that a middle school English teacher review all of the materials or something to that effect. And he was not wrong that we need things to be written clearly. Now, part of the issue is that big chapter 11 has developed in a way that says, we are the experts, trust us. We've got it under control. And so that it's okay to look so complicated because we're working with everybody's best interests at heart. But even if that's true, it's really not acceptable. And I think there is suspicion that there is a difference of perspective from this very elite, somewhat homogenous, but extremely hardworking group of professionals, and that they aren't perfectly suited to representing and reflecting the interests of everybody. So I don't think it's enough that the lawyers think it's clear enough. I think we know in Purdue that the documents and the releases and everything else were very, very difficult to understand. The other thing I would say about this is that the complexity of these documents is a somewhat understandable function of the pressure to settle and pressure to come to a deal. And here's what I mean by that. Purdue Pharma was very accommodating or said they were going to be very accommodating at hearings to incorporate any other suggested disclosures, adding extra exceptions, additional language. So things get added and added and added and overlaid and overlaid and overlaid because accommodating all of these different preferences. But then ultimately, what's left is really confusing. And so the idea of accommodating everybody's preferences or other lawyers' preferences by adding more caveats and more exceptions and more language makes it even harder for real people to interpret these things. So there's a lot that could be done to simplify things, but that will require a less lawyer-centered bankruptcy system. I want to switch gears just a touch to the Johnson & Johnson talk filing and hoping that you can explain a little bit about what's going on in this situation. Johnson & Johnson placed a subsidiary into Chapter 11 in North Carolina, and that company that's in bankruptcy, it says, bears all of the liabilities for its alleged talk baby powder liabilities. And then there's another entity that it formed that it gave the assets to. I was just reading, it formed the company as a limited liability company in Texas and then converted it to a North Carolina limited liability company. This was completed on October 12th. 
So just days before the filing. I know that there have been some asbestos cases that have done similar things, but I mean, this seems particularly egregious to me. Are there other cases that have done similar things to deal with mass tort liabilities? So I'm still wrapping my head around this particular case, given the time that we're talking relative to the time of filing, and I haven't dug into all of the documents yet. But I have not been shy to give my general first impression, which is that this is an outrageous use of bankruptcy. This has nothing to do with over-indebtedness. Unlike some of the other cases that we've been talking about, this is a healthy major company, Johnson & Johnson, who believes strongly that they don't have any liability or under the baby powder lawsuits anyway. And then to engage in a series of creative transactions leading to headlines that on their face are absurd, not because of the journalists or the newspapers who wrote them, but because of the concept that Johnson & Johnson has put its liabilities into bankruptcy. We do not put liabilities into bankruptcy. We put entities into bankruptcy. And there are rights and obligations that go along with that. And again, litigation management is a very far stretch from why we have a bankruptcy system. The the little tiny clause in the constitution that creates the bankruptcy system wasn't meant to be an alternative justice system for everything that we don't like how other courts come out. That just doesn't make sense. And it's very uncomfortable in a system that is supposed to allow states and state laws to do a lot of the work here to find a way into federal court to try to do it differently. So sure, there have been cases that have, I'm sure we could find a long line of cases that have had pieces of this strategy. But I think this one really epitomizes that enough is enough. And that we need to think about what the system's core competency is. And sort of ask that phrase we often see, you had one job. The one job is to deal with over-indebtedness. How about let's focus on doing that job well, rather than being a magnet for every kind of problem that a corporation or large enterprise would like an alternative justice system for. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the media headlines. I was listening to NPR describe the story, and they said that Johnson & Johnson's talk liabilities had filed for bankruptcy. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And it's just kind of accurate, but such a strange way to phrase it. You know, you never hear, as you said, liabilities can't file for bankruptcy, unfortunately. No. And if they can, then I would like low income individuals to be able to have that option because real families are treated in a completely different way in the American bankruptcy system. Um, They are held to very rigorous standards. They don't have the same invitation or latitude to be creative the same way that's offered to big enterprises. So if this is going to be the new direction, well, then let's open it up for some others because they desperately could use some extra flexibility in bankruptcy, but that is just not the way it's working right now. Right, right. I know that you're in North Carolina. Why might Johnson & Johnson have selected that forum? I know there have been some asbestos cases come through there, but... Is that the reason? Well, there there have. 
I like to say when I do not know, and I do not know, and I'm comfortable saying I do not know. I will tell you there is a big structural difference for courts in North Carolina and in Alabama than in other places. The bankruptcy courts in Alabama and North Carolina have opted out of the United States trustee system. And that is part of the Department of Justice that is the bankruptcy watchdog for the nation. Right. It's the entity that's appealing in Purdue. It is the entity that is appealing in Purdue. In North Carolina, there is a bankruptcy administrator that performs those functions. It is part of the court system. In this instance, their obligations are exactly the same. Their resources are understandably very different than this nationwide system of the U.S. trustee and the U.S. Department of Justice. So I will say, as a resident of North Carolina, the courts here are excellent. The judges are fantastic. So I've often wondered why more cases aren't filed here, although I'd prefer if they were companies that had a connection with North Carolina, (laughs) um, that would make the most sense to me. But we also have excellent lawyers here, really capable of doing a lot of this work. Those aren't the lawyers that filed this case or the lawyers leading the case for the debtor who come from far out of state. So we will see some differences in that regard, that we don't have that natural Department of Justice presence here. Now, I believe that there have been, in some asbestos cases that have taken place in North Carolina, the Department of Justice has found other reasons to get involved that are sort of unrelated to the U.S. trustee program, such as concerns about the claims and the accuracy of claims or the role that the plaintiff's lawyers were playing or something along those lines. So that's something I'm going to be potentially looking into more as I follow this case. But I do see that as a, as a big difference. And whether that drove the filing choice, I don't know, but it is a major distinction. Yes, certainly. I'm curious your thoughts. I'm sure that the plaintiff's lawyers will try, but do you think there's any chance that this case, or I'm sure it will be challenged for whether it was filed in good faith. Do you think there's any chance that an argument like that can succeed? I'm surprised that the good faith filing argument doesn't come up in more cases. We, of course, saw it very recently in the National Rifle Association. It was used effectively, although it took four months uh, for the case to be dismissed. And the National Rifle Association was given its due process rights, I suppose, to demonstrate that it belonged in bankruptcy and it really, truly could not. And it was stuck to the argument of how financially healthy it was and what goals it had for the case. And that was not consistent with keeping it in bankruptcy. We have not seen those arguments in many cases where I think they naturally could have been made. And there are good reasons for that. That is a big lawsuit. It's an expensive lawsuit. It diverts resources from other kinds of arguments and negotiations that they could be making. And so I imagine that there are very difficult discussions about whether to pursue those arguments or whether to try to strike some other deal. So I do not have my finger on the pulse of how plaintiff's lawyers approach these cases. And I could imagine a scenario where they would not do that because there might be other value in working toward a different deal. But that doesn't mean the argument shouldn't be made. Again, I want to look at the papers more closely, but I think that this kind of case by a financially healthy company that 
tries to put only its certain liabilities into bankruptcy is an illegitimate concept. So in the last few years, as I said, there have been so many of these cases that I think have gotten a lot more attention on certain specific issues in bankruptcy. And we've identified during this discussion so many of the reasons that this could be problematic and potentially ripe for reform. It does seem as though some fixes are percolating a little bit in Congress. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what ideas are being considered in Congress and whether you think that they have any chance. As is always the case, there's or nearly always the case, there are several bills floating around Congress that have something to do with bankruptcy. The ones that are most relating to Chapter 11 they fall in two categories. One of them is a perennial favorite, and this one is has <laughs> often been bipartisan in support, which is changing the rules on where big Chapter 11s get filed or this so-called venue question. And that bill has been reintroduced this term, again, on a bipartisan basis. The other area that we saw several bills in the past year or so come very much out of reactions to the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, so much so that one of them is called the Sackler Act. And both of those bills are trying to narrow the use of bankruptcy to give debt relief to persons who do not file bankruptcy, which seems very common sense to me. And again, you know, hearkening back to the early days of why we even talked about mass torts and bankruptcy, in the asbestos context, when other parties were going to be relieved of liability or because they made a contribution, we were often talking about insurance companies. The proceeds of these insurance policies are property of the bankruptcy estate. It makes sense to protect the insurance company and channel those resources into a trust. And now we're just in a whole other world of protecting lots and lots of parties for claims that aren't completely spelled out, even though we are talking about an opioid crisis that killed hundreds of thousands of people and left many more in a state of very difficult recovery and devastated families. And now why bankruptcy should have anything to do with that issue, why bankruptcy should be the site of trying to cure an opioid crisis is a question I'm still puzzling over. But in any event, the attention on the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy is what I think generated interest in both of those bills. The problem is that those bills did not move. They did not move in the committees that need to look at them in order to get anywhere. People can have lots of theories for why that is, but we know that there are some very politically powerful families and interests who may want bankruptcy to stay as flexible and to provide an alternative justice system that may make it very difficult to enact this kind of legislation. There are a lot of other areas that Congress could look at as well, but while they have their plate as full as it is, and given the influences that shape what they consider and pass, I guess I'm not optimistic yet that there will be progress made on that front. The venue reform bill has been floating around in many iterations for years without going anywhere and does look like perhaps the Sackler bill and similar legislation is stalled as well. 
Are there any other possibilities for reform besides Congress? I know, of course, the Supreme Court, as you said earlier in the discussion, didn't take up the equitable mootness issue at this time. Can you see there be any changes without congressional action? Well, I often like to remind people, and those who are in the deal-making world know this very well, that the law reforms through a lot of different channels. We could have the same exact bankruptcy code that is interpreted and implemented completely different ways. We already have that in America. At the same time, the same bill or the same laws are interpreted differently in one court versus another. But also over time, it is the repeat players of the bankruptcy world, especially in Chapter 11, they've remade the system without changing a word of the bankruptcy code, both by sort of this alternative justice system sense, and I sometimes call that off-label bankruptcy, using the tools of bankruptcy for a completely different purpose. They've also, in other contexts, we know that bankruptcy is used in what I've called an a la carte way. So all these perks were supposed to be bound together in order to accomplish objectives of debt restructuring for over-indebted companies. But very frequently, we see those tools sort of unbundled and the perks sort of extracted for themselves. And those things have all happened without a change in the code. The practices and the the ways that practices get sort of changed the law is very, very powerful. So it is always possible it could change again, but it's going to take some serious will of people who work on the front lines of these cases to shift the direction. What I do worry about is that, especially when we're in periods of crisis, whether it's a financial crisis, a pandemic, the push to be flexible is even more potent because there's concern about losing economic value even further. So I'm not necessarily optimistic about even these alternative, less formal channels, but I think it's really important to remember that the law gets made every single day by the real people working in the system. So it's not completely top down. And I know that something that you're working on right now is a book about inequity or the way the bankruptcy system reinforces inequity. I was wondering if you could talk about, you touched on it a little bit earlier, these mass tort cases and the way that they're handled in the bankruptcy system, the way it fits in to that. The book is tentatively called Just Debts, How the American Bankruptcy System Drives Inequality and How to Fix It. I study and teach about a lot of different kinds of bankruptcy and debt rather than specializing in only one type. And when you look across these different cases and stories, a picture starts to emerge that I've hinted at or suggested throughout our discussion today, and that the system's insufficiently focusing on relief of over-indebtedness, and instead we have this alternative justice system. And the features of this alternative justice system, when we add everything together, we see some patterns. So this system treats fake people, corporations, nonprofits, cities, better than real people, sometimes a lot better than real people. It trusts fake people more than real people. They have a lot more flexibility. And that's a pretty profound effect that we see. And that already is a form of inequality. And we also have strong signs of race inequality and sex inequality going on in the bankruptcy system that come from some of the same trends and sources. 
So the cases we've talked about today are using the perks of the bankruptcy system and remixing them for reasons that have little to do with why we have this system. Ultimately, the book's proposing, really, I would call it bankruptcy for minimalists. We kind of have to get back to the basics of why this system exists and try to do that thing well. And that some of these creative uses, if they're great ideas, then another legal system should embrace them and try to incorporate them that does not depend on the bankruptcy power. So trying to better democratize the justice system and that not concentrating so much power in the bankruptcy system, I do think is important to promoting many forms of equality. Would you propose that? Chapter 11 not be used to deal with mass tort liabilities when the company is otherwise solvent? I think if the company is financially healthy, I do have a problem with the use of bankruptcy to manage those liabilities. I appreciate and respect the arguments of many of my colleagues who admire aspects of the bankruptcy system and how they could be helpful. And again, that makes me harken back to my earliest days working on this with Elizabeth Warren when we were concerned about treating equally past, present, and future claimants. And so I suppose I could see a world in which the system moved more in that direction and that we were talking about a more distressed company that had a product that still should be on the shelves, had employed a lot of people and is trying to right some wrongs and make sure that future claimants are treated the same as past claimants. I still am unsure that that bankruptcy is the right place for that based on the track record that we've seen in recent years. So I am a skeptic of using bankruptcy for mass torts far more than I was when I started in this field long ago. Melissa, thank you so much for being here today to talk about all of this with us. I appreciate the chance to discuss this with you, Stephanie. Thank you. This is Stephanie Gleason, and you're listening to Fresh Start.